0: Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold, and I've got a wonderful show, but I've got Luke chapter 2 open. If you've been reading it this week and getting ready for Christmas, I love Luke 2, verses 8 to 11. And there were shepherds living out on the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause Great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Speaking of David, uh, David Wheaton is my first guest. As you know, he is a radio host, an author, a terrific friend, father, son, and also host of the Christian Worldview. You can go to the ChristianWorldview.org, learn more about David and hear his podcast. And also, um, uh, he has been so generous with his time. Taking us through Genesis, and now we're going uh, through Exodus, and we call this series "The Epic Exodus." Displays the awesome God. David, welcome.
1: Thank you, Bill, and Merry Christmas to you.
0: Merry Christmas to you and your family. Let's, as we go into Exodus, I think the second part is 16 in verse and chapter 17. Let's just brush up what we did last time.
1: Yeah, so for listeners who haven't been following the series, last time we were in Exodus 15 and 16, and this is that amazing part of this epic exodus where they, the Jewish people start to make their exodus, their exit uh, from Egypt, and it was on account of these plagues that God had sent upon the Egyptians and Pharaoh to let my people go, and he kept on refusing to let them go, and finally the super plague comes along, the death of the firstborn, all the firstborn of Egypt die, except for those who are in Jewish households, who obey God and by faith uh, kill a lamb. And this is the beginning of the Passover celebration. This is when it was instituted, and they put some of the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their house, and the angel of death passes over those homes. So it's an amazing—I mean, there's there's, there's so much application to who the future lamb of God would be that we celebrate here at Christmas coming into the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That all took place in the last couple times— we have we have talked, and so the people were just basically told to get out of the land now because this was a, a total destruction of you know, families, and it was just a complete time of sorrow and mourning in Egypt when the firstborn had died. But, of course, Pharaoh changes his mind and chases after them, and God does another miracle at the Red Sea. He opens up the Red Sea for the, the two million-plus sons of Israel to cross through on dry land, and the, the Egyptian army comes through, the sea crashes down on them. So we talked about that last time. Then in Exodus 15, the entire chapter of Exodus 15 is this song of praise from the, from the nation of Israel. It goes on for 19 verses, rightfully praising God after all he's done with these plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and saving them from certain death by Pharaoh's hands. And they say, "'Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders?' In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. And it's just an amazing part of the Bible. This is referenced all over in, in the later the Old Testament, in the New Testament. You'll see references pointing back to this particular time when God saved them miraculously at the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. And as they come out, Bill... God immediately tests what they sung in that song in Exodus 15. He's going to test them in only three days in the wilderness. And this is where we ended last time. They found no water as they traveled along. And instead, they begin to grumble at Moses saying, what shall we drink? And Moses realized that they were grumbling and complaining against God. Here, God had just showed all these amazing wonders. And three days later, they're, not, they're without water and they start complaining And this is the beginning of something that would characterize this generation coming out of Egypt, and it's something that we, as for an example for us today, we need to be very careful of doing, because God provides for all of our needs, and sometimes we need to be more patient than we really want to be.
0: That's so wise, David. Thank you for saying that. That's so important to be reminded of. So let's talk about the fact that they didn't fail one test, they failed more than one
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting. The first test was, you know, are you going to trust me? You've seen me literally leading you by a cloud, uh, a a cloud of smoke, kind of like during the day, a cloud during the day, and God is in a pillar of fire at night. So they're seeing these miracles. Three days later, they're questioning, "Well, well, there's no water. Where's the water? Well, not only that, but Exodus 16, turn the page. Now, the next chapter, God's going to test them again. And by the way, these tests are not temptations. There's a difference here. A a temptation is a solicitation to do sin or evil. God never tests us that way. A test, rather, is a hardship or some sort of trial that a God uses, causes, or allows in our lives to make us, to have our hearts turn to Him in a deeper way, a deeper trust, to, to be stronger in Him. And so in that first test, when they failed it, just in a few verses down towards the end of that Exodus 15, it says they came to a place called Elim, where there were 12 springs of water in 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the water. So they didn't pass that first test. If they had just trusted God was bringing them to a place with 12 springs of water. Mm. And so then you ask about the second test, so they, did, they failed the first one, so God lets them have another test. And 45 days later now, now about a month or so later after the first test, they come to another place, and then they say this, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you, Moses, have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I mean, really? <laughs> they, were, they were in terrible slavery mm-hmm. in Egypt. They were crying out to God for years. They were being oppressed. They couldn't take it anymore. And now they prefer that? because they're hungry. So God tests them again. Well, now they complain that there's no food. The word grumble is used eight times. in various, If you read this, you'll be amazed. Grumble, grumble, grumble. It's used eight times in a row here, at least eight times in a row. And there's this entitlement mentality that we deserve to be fed when we want our needs met. If I'm not going to get my needs met, I'm going to complain. And it's so opposite the way what Christ said in, in, in Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, for this reason, I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or for your body as to what you will be put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Don't worry then, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles or non-believers eagerly seek all these things. But he says this, the last verse in Matthew six, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Rest in the Lord, in other words, trust in him, and God will provide, just as he did with the nation of Israel. He provided, as we'll talk next, quail (laughs) during the night. The quail will come late in the day, and they go out and catch quail for meat. And in the morning, he instituted the way he would feed the nation of Israel for the next 40 years. By when dew would appear in the morning on the grass around the camp of the Jews, As the dew would dry off, all of a sudden, these kind of these like wafer-like, honey and wafer-like, almost like Nilla wafers would just appear on the ground, and they go out to gather every single day. And that's how God supernaturally fed this two million strong group of people as they made their their journey to the promised land.
0: Amazing. So
1: they're getting quail uh, at twilight
0: and manna in the morning. Yes. Yeah.
1: And, and it's it's incredible because they were this was also going to be a test by the way. Not only were they given quail in the twilight and manna in the morning, they were told to only gather enough manna for one day. And, and by the way, that manna is kind of I looked that word up. It's sort of an interesting term. It it, it means. What is it? <laughs> it's a Hebrew term that means, what is this on mm-hmm. the ground? And they named it that, uh, <laughs> because they had never, no one ever seen anything like it. It was just a supernatural way God was going to feed them for 40 years. As a matter of fact, they were going to take some of it, and in the future, when the Ark of the Covenant came around, they were told to store some in there as a reminder of how God fed them and how God led them in this exodus. But there was a test here with the manna Bill. And that God told them just to take enough for yourself, you know, for each person every day. And then he would provide more the next day. In other words, don't try to take so much so you store it, so you don't have to go gather the next day. And don't try to take too much on Friday to cover two days, because the manna will, will last. If you take it on Friday, you don't need to gather it on the Sabbath day, Saturday. Another test. Are they going to obey? They didn't obey. Some of them went out, tried to gather too much each day so they could store it. It would breed worms and get foul. The same thing on, on Saturday. They would gather enough for Saturday, but then they'd gather enough for Friday, and then they'd go again on Saturday against what God had commanded them. So God's testing them the whole way in order to make them stronger for the future obstacles they're going to face uh, as they go to the promised land. And unfortunately, at this point, they're failing every test.
0: Hmm. Boy, 40 years of quail, David. There must have been some interesting quail recipes.
1: <laughs> yeah, very much. <laughs> you know, some quail barbecue sauce. All right, let
0: me take a little break. I, we're going to come back and continue our study with David Wheaton on how epic Exodus displays the awesome God. We're in chapters 16 and 17. We'll be right back. Wednesday to you. I'm speaking to David Wheaton. He is my guest as we continue our awesome study of the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 16 and 17. So, David, when we um, think of manna, this became kind of an ongoing sign of God's faithfulness, didn't it?
1: It did, and at the end of that chapter in Exodus 16 says how important it was, not just because it was feeding them, it was their daily bread. This is where we get the expression, you know, bread from heaven. Mm-hmm. And there's so many expressions that we use, probably without even knowing, that come from biblical foundations, and this is one of them, well, bread from heaven. Well, that that's referring to the Exodus, where God provided manna uh, every day, six days a week, Uh, for the Jewish people. And it says there at the end of the chapter, the house of Israel named it manna. It was like coriander seed white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Uh, And then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded, take an omer full, so that's like a tenth of a bushel of it, and it shall be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of, of Egypt. So this chapter 16 closes with manna being kept as a reminder for God feeding them for 40 years in this wilderness. And by the way, why were they there for 40 years when it was probably only about, a I don't know, a, a two or three week journey? Well, it's because of their disobedience. And it's because, as we're going to see coming up, when they when they are told to go spy out the land, 10 of the 12 spies come back and have a bad report. And God lengthens it as a punishment to them that the older generation that left that was disobedient. We've already seen it time and time again. First, they complain about no water, then they complain about no food. They're going to complain about no water again coming up just in a second here. But God punished them, and then none of them except for Joshua and Caleb of that generation ever even got into the promised land. But there was an importance of a reminder here with this manna. This was Israel's food for 40 years, and it was delivered supernaturally by God. And so, you know, it'd be very difficult if you think about it. How do you feed 2 million plus people in a wilderness without staying in one place to grow crops or have animals? I and mean, mm. that's extremely difficult. I mean, that's a logistic that you can't even imagine. But they literally the the people were seeing God in a miracle every day when this manna would appear in the ground and when God would lead them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They shouldn't have been doubting. They shouldn't have been complaining. But again, we should never look at them and say, well, gee, if I was there, you know, it would have been so obvious. I would have been trusting God and hanging on to him and trust. You know what? We all have these same human tendencies that they have. We have a choice to make. Are we going to trust God or are we going to complain to God? Are we going to have faith in him that he's going to work things out for our good? We need to patiently wait in his timing. Or are we going to complain and grumble and demand things and have an entitlement mentality? And so we have these same tendencies that the nation of Israel does that have been so graphically illustrated just in the first couple of months as they they leave the nation of of Egypt.
0: David, it's amazing when you think of God providing for two million people in the desert. It's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, you, you just have to read between the lines a little bit and think, well, wait now, how does that work? How exactly. do they get fed every day? There's not, there's not uh, you know, a cub right down the street or right. a supermarket. Right. You, know? you just can't do that. And so, again, they were seeing a miracle on a daily basis, and they should have been faithful, but they chose not to be.
0: Mm-hmm. A couple notes from listeners. The manna for one day reflects the Lord's Prayer, where we ask to give us this day our daily right. bread. Teaches us go. to renew our reliance on God each day. Amazing.
1: Yeah, and I think in a way, and I don't have a biblical basis for this, this is just a little pet theory, take it as that, but I think, why did God design us to have to eat, you know, one to three meals a day? Mm-hmm. Why, why didn't he design us to have to eat at all? I think the, the way he designed us to have to rely on him Oops. hold on, sorry about that—had um, to rely on spiritual food. Um, it, it, physical food is the same way that he wants us to rely on the spiritual food of his Word— and so, in other words, we need physical food every day to eat. That's why he designed us to have to eat food, uh, you know, every single day. But even more important than that, as Job said, you know, your food, your spiritual food is more important than even necessary than my own physical food.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, let's jump ahead into Exodus chapter 17. And David, how are the people not exhibiting repentance?
1: Because they keep on doing the same thing over and over oh, again. It sounds you like know, human we, nature. We, It does. And it's the same thing we do when we just, you know, come on, God shows us, tells us what he wants us to do. And yet we keep on going, choosing to go our own way instead of his way. And so, you know, you turn the chapter, the chapter 17, and you see the same story roll out again. Then the congregation, the sons of Israel journey by stages from the wilderness, according to the command of the Lord. And they camped at a place called Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Now, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, it really is truly amazing. We've already gone through this, you know. right three days after they left Egypt, they journey now to a new location. Again, keep in mind, God is leading them. He didn't lead them to this place by mistake. That's really what they're saying. God, you led us to a place where there's no water. You're at fault for this. Mm -hmm. That's really what they're saying. And so there's no evidence anywhere along the way in these chapters we've been discussing that, that these people are repenting of their sin of grumbling and complaining and quarreling. As a matter of fact, it says here when Moses prays immediately to God and says, what should I do? He says, these people are going to stone me. That's how angry the people were at their situation, not having something to drink. And so God tells Moses at this point to strike a rock and water will come out. Yet, yet again, God does another miracle to help them understand that they can trust God if they just follow and obey him. And God has the elders, the leaders, of the people pass in front of the people to show them that those are his appointed leaders, trust the people I have, in charge of you. And there's another key difference here with this issue of repentance bill is that the people's reaction when the, something goes wrong for them is complain to Moses or you know entitlement mentality. What's Moses' response when there's something goes wrong? He immediately prays to God. And so the people exhibit no repentance, no change of heart, not learning the lessons that they should have been learning, failing every test here. Well, Moses who's a a man after God's heart like David, King David was uh, turns to God in prayer always when something difficult, something challenging comes up
0: mm. so they're complaining they have no water to drink, they probably have no tennis to watch, they're probably just miserable, right they they are pretty miserable
1: <laughs> and they're taking it out on the wrong person. They right. should be just praying to God and right. trusting him, getting on their knees, but that's not what they're doing. They're sinning against God and complaining him like complaining like I said. God had led them there to this new campsite. They should have been, well, God led us here. I'm sure he has a plan for us. Let's patiently trust him because they're really complaining. And Moses said that to them several times. You're not complaining against me. You're complaining against God because he led us to this place.
0: Mm -hmm. All
1: right, David, let's jump ahead to the
0: first military battle. I think that's in Exodus 17, 8. What, What did we learn about that?
1: Right. Well, this is interesting, too, because they're going to go from Egypt now up to the Promised Land. This is a a journey that's like, you know, they're going to have to travel northeast. And along the way, this is, it's wilderness, but there are a lot of different nomadic peoples living there. And back then, you didn't kind of cross through people's territory without there's some sort of, you know, violent conflict. And so they're going to have their first military battle with an interesting opposition called the Amalekites, and it says in Exodus 17, the, the, then Amalek or the Amalekites came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, this is the first mention <clears throat> excuse me, of Joshua in Scripture, choose men for us to go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did. Remember, Joshua is faithful. He always does as Moses tells him to do because he knows Moses is chosen by God to lead the people. And they fought against Amalek. And Moses stood on top of the sill, and probably many people know the story. Uh, Moses has a staff in his hand. He's up there holding his staff. The staff represents how God parted the Red Sea, it basically represents the power, the omnipotence. And, and the the sovereignty of God, and that they can trust in God. And Moses is holding up the staff, but as his arms get tired, they begin to lose the battle, and so Joshua and Aaron go up there, they hold up his arms, and they win this first battle, and it's meant to teach the nation of Israel, again, look up to the Lord. Look what he's done for you. Just trust him. He's testing them along the way, because the Amalekites would be the, one of the biggest thorns in the sides— Of the nation of Israel, not only at this time, but for many, many centuries to come. And there's so many stories of descendants of the Amalekites, whether it was with King David, whether it was with Saul and not, remember Agag, King Agag, he didn't kill all that, he kept some of the spoil, that was the Amalekites. It wasn't until the time of Ruth Actually, sorry, uh, Esther. I mean, mm. when Haman was the one who was trying to destroy Mordecai, that the Amalekites, as God promised, would finally be destroyed. These people were constantly the enemy of Israel, and this was the first group that they faced in warfare as they left Egypt.
0: Ah, such a great study, David. Thank you so much for continuing our study on the epic Exodus, displaying the awesome God. So we've got a big birthday coming up on Saturday. Do you want to talk about that or?
1: I do. You're so nice to ask about that, because I want to wish my father a happy 90th birthday. I mean, that's a <laughs> yeah. big day for him, and we are so thankful to the Lord that he has given him so many years with us. See, God knew that our family and others needed him to be here, uh, investing and putting so much into all of our lives, as he has done over my entire lifetime. So happy birthday, Dad, and Merry Christmas as well.
0: Yeah, a Christmas baby. Your dad was a Christmas baby, and it's a uh, right. 1931, uh, 1931. That's fantastic. And uh, your, your mom is amazing. And uh, what a wonderful celebration you'll have this weekend. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that and wishing your dad a happy birthday. I do the same. Happy birthday, Mr. Wheaton. Really nice. Uh, you had some kids that turned out pretty good.
1: Well, by God's grace, Bill. <laughs> and uh, they love you very much yeah, as well. Thank you so much. David, have a great Christmas. Blessing to you and your family. You too, Bill. Thank right, you.
0: You bet. Thanks. We're gonna take a little break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Amanda Porter. She wrote a devotional called Dear Anxiety, Let's Break Up, 40 Devotions to Conquer Worry and Fear. I want to say hi to Rosie, uh, who's on the road right now driving to Duluth. She's got her big day off and a big weekend ahead, and she's celebrating um, with her family. And so, if, Rosie, if you guys are driving, just honk right now to know that you're listening. Yeah, there, I heard it. Did you hear that, Ryan? Yeah, Ryan's shaking his head yes, too.
1: I heard it all the way from here, absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) Turn down the volume on that horn. That's really a lot (laughs) of horn. (laughs) So we'll take a break and come back. Dr. Amanda Porter will be with us. 40 devotions, 40 devotions to conquer worry and fear. How's that sound? Dr. Amanda Porter's book is called Dear Anxiety Let's Break Up. I've got five copies of her book to give away. I bet you are interested already. Um, you have probably experienced your own anxiety and worry, because I think we all do. But sometimes, uh, Dr. Porter says, we mistake anxiety as a sin and consequently experience feelings of guilt. Although anxiety can sometimes occur as a result of our sins, uh, specifically as consequences of poor choices, we can learn to minimize our anxiety levels by making good decisions, praying, receiving input from trusted sources, And surrounding ourselves with other people who make good decisions. Dr. Amanda Porter is my guest. She is a psychiatric nurse practitioner with triple board certifications in internal medicine, psychiatry, mental illness, and addiction, and shares uh, uh, she's one of 40 million adults in the US who struggles with anxiety. Amanda, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me bill yeah it's nice to
0: meet you for the first time um yeah you uh you are a pastor's wife in addition to everything you do aren't you
2: i am I have been living at kind of this intersection of faith and mental health for quite a while now my my father is a pastor I ended up marrying a pastor even though I swore I never would it happened anyway um and then because of the work that I do i've got that um that influence of Mental health in my life, and um, just recently, you know, over the past couple years, I've really started paying more attention to the tension that Christians, in particular, seem to feel when they're battling mental health issues. Um, Like you said, anxiety is quite rampant. I mean, we're talking forty million Americans. I am I am one of those um, struggling with an anxiety disorder. I actually I suspect the numbers are actually higher Mm -hmm. than 40 million i.e. those are of course the people who report their anxiety seek treatment for their anxiety um i i would guess that the number is um is far higher than that
0: but Mm -hmm.
2: yeah yeah but thanks again for having me
0: yeah so amanda is it okay to be overwhelmed or angry or even despondent
2: oh uh, yes i mean (laughs) short answer yes how could you not be i mean we're all humans we're wired up Uh, to feel emotions is the way that we were created. And certainly it's, it's more than just okay to have emotions. It's normal to have emotions. Now how we handle those emotions, I think is kind of um, where it gets a a little dicey for some of us. It's easy to get overwhelmed with our emotions, but the fact that we have them is completely normal.
0: Yeah. So we have these big feelings. What do we do with these big feelings?
2: Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's always the big question. Um, And, you know, when I think about all the different ways of coping that are out there, um, the first thing that always comes to mind for me is self care. Mm. Um, You know, really getting back to basics, focusing on hydration and nutrition and getting good sleep and incorporating some body work into your daily life, Um, focusing on skills like self-compassion or gratitude or mindfulness, Um, you know, that's kind of like next tier, next level self-care. And other than self-care, of course, getting a therapist. Everyone, every human needs to sit in front of a therapist at least once in their life. That's At least that's what I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. There was a pastor I had many, many, many years ago, and he said that when people come in with anxiety and worry and fear and everything else, he said, the first three questions I ask are What kind of exercise are you getting? What's your diet like? Mm -hmm. And are you getting any sleep? Because if you're not taking care of those three things, boy, you're going to be in trouble.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I would say the least used antidepressants that exists is um, a regular and consistent exercise routine. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy. You know, it can just be a walk around the block after supper every day, just doing something meaningful with your body every day. Um, That definitely counts. And then sleep. Oh, my gosh. None of us a chance of being happy in this world if we're not getting consistent restorative sleep.
0: Yeah, so true. So talk about self-talk. I know that can be a challenge for a lot of people. People have thoughts in their head and they don't know what to do with them. And how yeah. do we speak truth to ourselves that are, that eliminates or diminishes that bad self-talk?
2: Right. Well, I mean, that's a great question. I think one of the first steps in correcting any negative self-talk is recognizing that it's there. And then recognizing where it's coming from, you know, <clears throat> a lot of us um, we have negative self-talk because of something that was spoken to us when we were young. I think that what is said to us in childhood is just so deeply ingrained on us, and even as adults, we can we can still struggle. So I think recognizing that that negative self-talk is there, recognizing where it came from, and correcting it with truth and. This is, um, this is, of course, a lifelong process. Um, a lot of us will struggle with this to some degree for the rest of our lives. But I always like to encourage my patients, um, you need to fire your inner critic. Yeah. Whoever, whoever that inner critic is, they, you know, their, their time is up. They need to be fired.
0: Mm-hmm. You say in your book that you are not your diagnosis. Your diagnosis is not your identity. There's a monumental difference between I feel anxious and I am anxious. Would you talk about that?
2: Yes. Oh, yes, 100%. This is, um, it, it might seem like a simple thing, but to me, it's really big. I'm always educating my patients to say, you know, coaching them to say, for example, <clears throat> I don't want to hear from them, I am bipolar. I want to hear from them, I have bipolar. In my mind, those those things are uh, very different, and so I never want my patients to say, I am anxious, I would prefer for them to say, I have anxiety, because the struggle that they are um, trying to tackle, that's not who they are, that is not their true identity, you know, for my patients who have um, a belief in Jesus, I I educate them and coach them on who their true identity is, you know, it's, um, it's a beloved child of God, and they are not their illness, bottom line, they are not their illness.
0: You also talk about in your book that you need to stop feeding the anxiety by cutting it off at the source, whatever that source mm. may be. The world feeds us lies, but Scripture gifts us with the truth. Amen, sure. Amanda. Say more.
2: Sure. <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's such a tricky thing, and we're being influenced in ways that we might not even notice. Um, we're receiving this input um, that's fueling and feeding our anxiety. and So I'm always, I'm always coaching people, you know, make sure you're checking your input. Make sure you're setting boundaries and setting limits, um, specifically when it comes to social media. And I'm not here to bash social media whatsoever. I think that when it's used correctly, it can be a really powerful tool. I just don't often see it used that way. I see it more often as a space for criticism and comparison. And so I'm telling um, I'm telling my patients, uh, I like to use this metaphor, actually, that social media is a lot like wildfire. If you use it correctly and skillfully, you can cook yourself a warm meal with wildfire. But if you're reckless or irresponsible with it, um, you can burn your house down. And that's how I like to think of of social media. It, it can be a useful tool, but often it's not. And unfortunately, I think um, a lot of us do a lot of doom scrolling on our our feeds, and that input that we're receiving is fueling our anxiety.
0: Mm -hmm. Dr. Amanda Porter is my guest. She's written a book called Dear Anxiety, Let's Break Up, 40 Devotions to Conquer Worry and Fear. Amanda, if you would, um, discuss with us about the idea of having an anxious thought versus having a feeling of being trapped in an anxious thought pattern.
2: Hmm... So are you, okay. I so mean, everybody you, has an
0: anxious thoughts, Right, right. But if you're so like steady, when does
2: it cross the line? Exactly. Like when, is it, when does it kind of morph into a disorder? Exactly. <clears throat> right, right, <clears throat> excuse me. I would say um, mental health is um, a little sticky in this way. I think this is where some of the stigma comes from. There's, um, there's a lot of nuance in mental health and in psychiatry. And what's true for one person might not be true for another person. So when I'm diagnosing um, someone with a true anxiety disorder, I really want to hear from them about how it's impacting their daily life and their functioning. So some people, you know, an anxious thought enters their mind, they're able to push it away relatively easily. Other people become completely incapacitated by those anxious thoughts and things just kind of spiral. They have these, these thoughts spirals where they're completely consumed with their anxiety. And it starts to impact their ability to function. Maybe they isolate more. Maybe they're not able to hold down a job. Maybe they have some sort of um, physical manifestation of their anxiety. And for that person, I think it's crossed the line. It's no longer just an anxious thought. It's an anxiety disorder. And, you know, that person stands to benefit if they uh, are willing to be vulnerable and seek help. I think that all of that is very treatable.
0: Dr. Amanda Porter's got a book called Dear Anxiety, Let's Break Up. She was nice enough to offer us five copies to give away. So if you'd like to get in on the drawing, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Again, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Amanda, on day 15, you talk about the imposter syndrome. When you think to yourself, what am I doing here I'm a fraud, and this kicks off a stream of anxious thoughts. Um, I skip that devotion entirely because that does not apply to me at all.
2: Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Does not apply to all of us, though. Oh, whether it applies care, to all of us, whether we care to admit it or not. But um, <clears throat> yeah, it's um, you know, and I tried explaining this to um, to my dad one day, and he was he was very surprised because he said, you know, Amelia, you come off for the most part, pretty confident. And, um, and certainly I've got all the letters after my name to back up what I'm saying, but there are still days when I just have such intense, um, anxiety surrounding, you know, gosh, do people think I'm a fraud? Do people, do do they trust me at all? Like, Why are they listening to me? Who am I? You know? Um, and that, that has been a bit of a struggle for me. Absolutely. Imposter syndrome. Definitely.
0: And there's a little bit of humility there as well, because I come into a radio mm. station and I'm usually filled with people like you, with all these big degrees and letters, and mm. you know, theologians and really super smart people. And I do my very best to keep up with them, but there are some days that I think, "Oh boy, um, I'm I'm way <laughs> way behind you."
2: <laughs> <laughs> we all feel that way.
0: Yeah, but it's uh, it, it's it's a challenge for sure. So um, let's talk about growth and how we have to work in our, our problems and our, our, you know, healing doesn't come easy. And if we feel mm-hmm. like we've been in a, a cycle of, of speaking negative thoughts to ourselves, how we can break that pattern, how we can start to feel um, like we've got a, a new path go- going on.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is this is an important distinction to make. Um, there is absolutely room for healing when it comes to mental health issues, but I want I want to caution people. There's a difference between healing and curing, and I think that that distinction is um, is really important to make because it factors into your expectations for what your recovery and your growth is going to look like. Um, I think that to me, curing is you know as if an illness never existed in the first place. You know, you go, you get your treatment, uh, you're cured. You never have to deal with the ramifications. But healing, um, I think, is more so acceptance of an outcome. It's a peacefulness about a situation. So I I think that anxiety and anxiety disorder cannot be cured, but it can be healed. I can be healed from my anxiety, but I can't be cured of it. It is something I'm going to have to keep tabs on for the rest of my life. The goal is never eradication, but manageability. Manageability is the goal when it comes to anxiety. I think healing does not come easily. Um, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience. Um, it, it takes a lot of investment and finances, unfortunately, um, when you're healing from an anxiety disorder. But the key thing to remember is that it is really impossible to have change, and comfort at the same time. And I try and keep that in mind when I'm when I'm having one of my bad days.
0: Mm. So wise. So Amanda, what one thing maybe God told you about how to cope with your anxiety? And if you want to think about that, mm-hmm. I can go to break, so when we come back, it'll give you 90 seconds to think about it. You want to do that?
2: Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Awesome,
0: awesome. Dr. Amanda Porter is my guest. Her book is Dear Anxiety, Let's Break Up. 40 Devotions to Conquer Worry and Fear. She was nice enough to offer us five copies to give away. If you'd like to get in on the drawing of this beautiful little devotional, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Anxiety, let's break up. This book written by Dr. Amanda Porter. offers 40 devotions written from both a medical and biblical perspective to help us understanding the Bible's message on mental health, develop um, coping skills, and reverse the cycle of negative thinking. And it also helps you learn to support loved ones who also struggle with anxiety. She has given us five copies to give away if you want to get in on the drawing. And many of you are. 877-933-2484. Text the word BOOK to that number, 877 So, Amanda, I gave you 90 seconds. Can you think of one thing maybe God has taught you to, to deal
2: with some of your anxiety? Yes, yes. Well, of course, the book is full of everything that I've learned in my personal journal, A oh, uh, Journey with Anxiety. But um, I think one big key thing for me was understanding that anxiety is not a sin. Anxiety is an emotion right? Um, Emotions are a universal human experience. Emotions drive our behavior. Emotions are communicators. I like to tell my patients that emotions get a seat at the metaphorical table, but they don't get to sit at the head of the table. So it is important to listen to emotions, but they can't be the only thing that drives our behavior and our decisions. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just that whole process of normalizing my experience of anxiety, everyone struggles with anxiety to some degree, um, and then realizing that my anxiety is not a sin, I think that's pretty toxic theology, and a lot of people kind of over-spiritualize um, mental health issues, and, you know, they say, oh, just, just pray more, just read your Bible more, why don't you have more faith? And I think that um, that really minimizes a person's struggle and, and does nothing to help them in their recovery. I think just recognizing that our stress response is, is originally really meant to be a life-saving tool, the whole fight-or-flight thing, right? So I was created with this stress response. There's nothing wrong with me. I just, uh, just got to get a better handle on <laughs> on my anxiety. But I think overall I would want your listeners to know that anxiety is something that you can be healed from. It's very treatable. And I, my heart just breaks with people who feel like they can't reach out and get help.
0: Amanda, uh, anxiety is also a tool that Satan can use to separate us from God. Mm-hmm. You talk absolutely. about this, and at the very least, to get us to doubt him and ignore him, we mm-hmm. know that fear and anxiety can be some of Satan's most effective tools. We think of 2 mm-hmm. Timothy one seven.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I think this is a very easy tool that he can use to divide us between... Uh, put, a, put a, you know, block between ourselves and our Creator. Um, someone with an anxiety disorder, our so thoughts are just so consumed with so many things, so many worst-case scenarios and so much catastrophic thinking, and that is such a big distraction when we could be filling our minds with Scripture, um, with words of truth, with calm and with peaceful thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, Satan's just one big distractor.
0: Amanda, you touched on this, but I think I'd like to go in in a little bit deeper on this. When it comes to talking with a loved one who might be struggling with anxiety, because we'll probably be around a lot of loved ones coming up over the holidays uh, just ahead. So what are some things that we want to encourage people not to say?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, I would encourage people to really avoid um, kind of uh, taking over the conversation I I think the best and biggest thing a person can do is listen. Say a few words, listen very closely. Um, I think encouraging your loved one to know that um, if they need help, if they're in a really, really dark place, that you're a safe place they can turn to without, um, you know, risking any kind of shame, blame, judgment, criticism. Um, I definitely don't want people to be dishing out advice that they're not qualified to give. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, the best thing a loved one can do is help your person who's struggling, help that person get in front of someone who's qualified, who can equip them with the right tools. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all about that connection to care. It's really hard, you know, to take that first step and make that call and schedule that appointment, but that is something that you can help your loved one do.
0: Amanda, I like in your book, you say things like, um, if you've had a loved one struggling with anxiety, uh, you're encouraging them to not say, well, you don't look depressed or because you say mm. anxiety, along with all mental health issues, is often invisible. Or you say right. something like, but you have so much to be happy about. Or mm. there are people that have it worse than you. Or I know exactly how you feel. This yeah. may be the case, but this sort of statement actually turns the attention back on you.
2: Exactly. Exactly. We don't want to be a one-upper in this situation, because that is really going to minimize the, this person's pain. They felt comfortable enough to come with you, to come to you with their pain. You want to be just uh, an open, not an open book necessarily, but you want to be a person who um, is a safe place for them, ultimately holds space for their emotions.
0: So you give us some nice little alternative statements that we can put in the back of our heads. Things like mm-hmm. saying to someone struggling with anxiety, I'm here for you, or you are mm-hmm. strong and I believe in you, or you are loved or please don't give up, you're not alone. Mm. Or So all these very affirming things give people a sense of I'm being heard, I'm being seen, and I'm being cared for. That's a big deal.
2: Right. Right. Absolutely. I think the support piece is is huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's okay to not have the right things to say. Um, It's okay to just be quiet. (laughs) Again, it it goes back to listening. It's okay to say um, nothing and just be a really good set of ears and a shoulder for them to cry on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So
0: if we can talk about an actionable step that listeners might be able to say, I can work on that tonight. Mm -hmm. What might be a a, a reasonable step someone could take that say, boy, my anxiety is pretty high right now. My my worry is, is off the charts. I heard a radio show today and Dr. Amanda Porter said, you know what, I could do this tonight. What mm. might be that advice be?
2: Yeah, uh, i think get a good night's sleep. <laughs> sleep is just super healing and I think we take that for granted. Um, we are not serious enough about our sleep hygiene. Um, we kind of take it for granted that, oh, we'll just sleep when we want to sleep, but that's not exactly how our brains are wired up. We have to be really diligent, really purposeful, very um, intentional about protecting sleep. Sleep is sacred, and so um, I think being really intentional about making sure that you are um, sleeping in a good environment, that you're watching your caffeine intake, mm-hmm. that you're going to the going to bed at the same time every night, getting up at the same time every morning. You know, cooling it with the screens. No screens in bed whatsoever. Um, Making sure that you are getting that exercise during the day because that's going to help you sleep at night. Um, all these all these things and more go into good sleep hygiene practices. And once you are um, once you're on a good stretch of you know three, four, five nights in a row of really solid restorative sleep, that will soothe your mind. That will soothe those anxious thoughts. Your energy will be better, your mood will be lighter, and your outlook will be tremendously brighter.
0: I know that's a big topic that you opened up because I know you can't pursue sleep; it pursu- pursues you. Mm-hmm. And as much as you want to sleep and you'd like to take that advice, people simply can't because they've gone months or years sleeping mm-hmm. poorly. So that might have that might have encouraged people and frustrated others.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's not an overnight thing. You know, yeah. once you once you've decided to correct your poor sleep habits, it's going to take some time before you see results.
0: Yeah, amen. Yeah. This is a a very well-written book. You've got 40 Devotions to Conquer Worry and Fear. It's a nice little book called Dear Anxiety, Let's Break Up. Dr. Amanda Porter has been my guest, and she has made five copies available. So if you'd like to get in on the drawing to get one of these copies, you can text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Again, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Amanda, nice to meet you. Thank you so much for doing the show. Mm -hmm. And I hope you thank have you
2: a, so much, Bob.
0: Hope you have a wonderful Christmas.
2: Yes, same to you. With Merry e- Christmas.
0: Your loved ones, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you so much. All right, Dr. Amanda Porter's been my guest. We're gonna take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Peter Kapsner and I have got a wonderful hour planned. We recorded it a couple of days ago. So uh, Dr. Ian Paul is our guest. We're talking about what happened in Luke chapter two and getting a solid biblical understanding of the night Jesus was born. So it is a fascinating study on Luke chapter 2. I highly recommend getting out your Bible and opening it up. As we go through it, you will find some fascinating things because we have all learned about Christmas time through tradition, and sometimes the traditions have just not been accurate. So, we're going to dissect what the Word of God says and what the uh, truth is, and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it because. Uh, Again, he is in the UK, and he's six hours ahead of us, so we had to record it a little bit earlier, but it's all set to go, and you're going to love it. So we'll take a break and be back with Dr. Ian Paul in just a minute.